Thank you, Brian and Elizabeth, for leading us in worship and making us reach for those notes. I haven't sung that high since junior high. That was awesome. And I could hear Mark Meredith just skying back there. Yeah. Well, he's awake now. I'll check on him in about 20 minutes. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I don't even know if I need to have you read the first two verses of Ecclesiastes. But let's get after it here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a start, right? As you read who this is, the son of David, we'll talk more of that. You, there's assumptions that come right to your mind. Well, this is Solomon. And, uh, and what's he going to say? I mean, Proverbs was really good. And if you're doing your Bible read-through, you've just lost your breath reading through the book of Proverbs. And then you get to Ecclesiastes and say more good stuff. And he starts out what, on what seems to be a negative note. And it's with those two verses we now launch what we call our winter conference series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to soon find out that though those opening words sound negative, they are profound and they are necessary wisdom on our journey towards joy. And so I welcome you to our winter conference this year. And my assignment this evening is to launch the series with giving you an overview of the book and illustrating it with chapter 1. And um, someone, I, before I get into the book any further though, someone may be asking a question. This isn't in your notes, but the question is this. Why another winter conference series? This is only the second one we've done since I've been here, and it has a unique nature. We did it with Philippians last year. And... We were very pleased and excited to see the men of our church come together, talk with each other for weeks on end, swap commentaries, uh, uh, try out um, ideas and organizations for their sermon based on what the guy before them was going to preach. And, and it was just a fun uh, two-and-a-half-month process through the book of Philippians. And so I wanted to do it again this winter, this time in the Old Testament with the book of Ecclesiastes. You say, well, why, please remind us again why we are doing this, okay? Let me give you a couple of reasons. The first one is, is a corporate focus. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I want us as a church family to corporately put our mind down on one book together in a compressed time. This is unlike what we did with Luke, no doubt, which took three years and a pandemic. James took 11 months when we went through that. Uh, First Peter, once we hit First Peter after two more biographical studies, will go about two dozen messages, I believe. And those are spread out. But what we do with the winter conferences is all of us just kind of getting the chariot together and ride it for a short amount of time, all of us focusing on and thinking about one particular book as a church family. Why would we not want to do that? Another reason we do the Winter Conference Series is this, um, with the various speakers, I call it male leaders and students. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, part of this is um, the, the development of male leadership in the church and also the, the crafting of careful students of the word. I mean, the pressure's on. If I've given you the call to participate in this series, um, it changes the way you listen to the messages that came before you, and then after your turn's done, you want to hear how the other guys do after you and make sure they don't mess up what you said. And it creates kind of like a, um, just, a, just a, 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 a brotherhood, if you will, of men who are being stretched in their study of Scripture because they have to stand before you as a church family and teach. And this is the development of male leadership in the church. On that note, I'd like to say that you support the men of your church in this series, like you did last year. You support them with your presence. 
whenever they speak, say, well, I got the live stream. It's not the same. Their eyeballs, meeting your eyeballs, is stretching them and their leadership. And here's my appeal that you come and support the men of your church with your presence and with your prayer. Uh, we've put a slide together for this series. It's in the news and prayer often, and it's always uh, scrolling through the, the screens here on Sunday in our rotations. They're not listed in speaking order. It's just the men as I thought of them, and Michael, Pastor Michael and I are last on that list. It shouldn't matter who's speaking on a given Sunday night in this series because you're pulling for the home team. And so be praying for them. I remember uh, growing up at Calvary Baptist Church in Roseville, Michigan, with Pastor Bob Rhodes and Les Olaloff. And every, uh, every summer, they would get together. They'd always have like four or five guys that were studying for ministry at Bible college. And every summer, they'd, he'd give them a month and a half of Sunday nights to preach. And I was a kid then, under 10 years old, as my memory goes, back at that time. And even a 10-year-old or under 10-year-old, I could tell that some of these guys weren't really good at all. <laughs> they were just like awful preachers, you know. But what Pastor Rhodes was doing is making them, he was stretching them, putting them in front of the people, making them work hard, and the church just came out to support the men, these young men and the older men that were studying for ministry. That's your role as we do this conference. So please come. What's another reason we do this series? Uh, future church leadership. Well, you say, what do you mean by that? Well, we are nurturing a pool of future church leaders that might show up here in a church leadership role or in another church somewhere else. We don't know where God will take the men of our church, and, and not every guy gets to do the conference each year. We, we, we're going to change guys in and out because we have a good problem here. Uh, God's growing our church. And men are having a desire to learn how to teach and preach and counsel. And uh, who knows what God will do with these men. What's another reason we do it? Because of all the Ecclesiastes questions that are out there. Have you ever noticed that Ecclesiastes is often a misunderstood book, and can I even put it this way, an avoided book? Because there's some things that are hard to understand. Some people look, and it's not hard to find these people, uh, they're in the commentary sections too. Some people say that Ecclesiastes is nothing more than the musings of an ungodly loser. That's it. I had one man in a church like ours, in a county next to ours, say to me when I was studying for ministry, be careful with Ecclesiastes. It's a book that gives birth to the cults. He was serious. Some people say that Ecclesiastes is nothing more than gloomy cynicism or just a, a fatalistic rant. Ecclesiastes is so misunderstood. If you come with any of those presuppositions, you're going to be, you're going to be discouraged with what we're going to say from this pulpit as we study this book together as a church and as speakers. I agree with Dr. Bill or William Barrick at the Master's Seminary in his excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says in all reality, Ecclesiastes is the Philippians of the Old Testament. I like that. Do you understand that 17 times in the book of Ecclesiastes you have the concept of joy or gladness just jumping off the I love that. The Philippians of the Old Testament. So I don't want you to be afraid of this book. As a matter of fact, I would like for, I would love to see you just soak yourself in this book while we're doing this series. Between now and the middle of April, we'll have a few pauses in the series, but between now and the middle of April, why not read a chapter of Ecclesiastes every week in a different translation and a different study Bible each time? Just pour over it. And it will, you'll find that it'll change how you pray for whoever's up next Sunday. And, uh, and you're going to be listening harder. Make it your goal to get to know this amazing book. What's another reason why we do this series, the Winter Conference series? Because of the sufficiency of Scripture. You say, I don't know if I'm that much into Ecclesiastes. You're supposed to be. Put it bluntly. Because when Paul wrote to Timothy, the verse that we all know, 
2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's what's right, for reproof, that's what's wrong, for correction, that's how to fix what's wrong, and for training in righteousness. When Paul wrote that to Timothy, he only was referring to the Old Testament at that point. And Ecclesiastes is part of that. So sufficiency of Scripture is a reason why you need to you need to know Ecclesiastes and benefit from it. It'll show you what's right, what's wrong, how to fix what's wrong, and how to keep right what's right. But there's one more reason that this is an important series for us. And if you haven't noticed, life is short. Have you noticed it's been racing by? Have you noticed that you hurt where you didn't used to hurt? Have you noticed you can look someone in the eye and you have not the foggiest idea what their name is? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that you get a little winded anymore whenever you tie your shoe? <laughs> Life is going by fast. Moses said to us through Psalm 90, verse 12, these words, Lord, teach us to number our days. For what purpose? So that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses gave us the assignment. You say, what are the specifics of the assignment? Master a book like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes will give you a heart of wisdom during your fleeting life. So my goal this evening is to prep you for the next 11 studies and what I'm going to do, Lord willing, along those lines is, first of all, give you an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes to set the course. And then I want you to see that chapter 1 is exhibit A of what will be the thrust of the entire book. You might still be asking at this point, what do I need to see or notice? Here, at, at the very start, the first message of this, this conference, this emphasis on Ecclesiastes, this journey, as we call it. What do I need to see? What do I need to note before I take one step farther in? And the answer is this. Tonight I want to just show you four hallmarks of Ecclesiastes. I told my wife I would use that as my, my word tonight, hallmarks. I'm scoring points up here left and right. Uh, I'm not going to watch a hallmark tonight, but I'm going to use it in the sermon, okay? Four hallmarks of Ecclesiastes. Get these down you'll be introduced to the book. What's the first hallmark? I want you to see, first of all, when it comes to Ecclesiastes, we're talking about an author with credentials. An author with credentials. If you ever want to start a fight over coffee with someone, you know, you're sipping coffee and you want to liven things up a little bit and you want to get into a little tuffle and a little debate, you can ask questions that are sure to stoke up a debate as you drink your coffee. You can ask a question like, the Wolverines or the Spartans? That'll start a good debate. You could ask a question like, iPhone or Android? That'll start a debate. You can ask a question like, Mac or Windows? That'll definitely start a debate. With Pastor Michael, you think he's a nice guy? Ask him that one. You want to start another debate over coffee? Simply ask the question, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Who wrote it? And you'll have lively debate, fun debate. And so let me just break it down in so, into some units of thought that helped me uh, as I was studying. First of all, what do we know? What do we know? We know this, that Solomon's name is not mentioned at all in these 12 chapters. It's just not there. You look for it, you're not going to find it. But what do we see here? We do see a title. And you saw it in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You see it opening this book. You see it in the opening chapter of this book yet again. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. You're going to see it once in the middle of the book, Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be going a lot left and right. Just get used to this tonight. 
Ecclesiastes 7, verse 27. He writes, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher. So you have it at the beginning. You have one touch point in the middle. And then the book ends using this name. Look at chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searching out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So in a very real sense, you have the book launch with this title, Preacher, in the English, in the version I'm using here. And it ends on the same title, Preacher, and we have one touch point in the middle. But I find that very instructive. In a very real sense, these are serving as, if we can call them, bookends of author. Who is this preacher? And by the way, I do hold that this particular word is a title, not a proper name. And I'm not alone in that. I, I think the ESV Study Bible even lands in a good way on that, as well as the the, the Dallas commentary. Um, it's a title. It's not a proper name, in my opinion, especially because it uses the definite article in front of it, the preacher, at least once, if not twice, in those times that I, those occasions I mentioned to you. This word preacher is, is a word, uh, and you've heard this word before, it's koheleth, koheleth. And there's a lot of commentary work done on this word, the nature of this word, the, 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 the extent of this word, the meaning, the, the semantic domain type talk. And what it means, I think, at the end of the day, is it's, one, it's a person that can call a gathering together and then instruct that gathering. It's someone up front that people are focusing on because they've made it known they have something to say and it's important we get together so you can hear it. That's Koheleth, and I believe this is a title in this book. You say, well, what else do we know? Well, again, look at, back at verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher. Who's the preacher? That's what we should be asking. And the next phrase is, the son of David. The son of David. So what you say, well, um, Joseph, Mary and Joseph, uh, Jesus, all these others could be said to could be called a, a son of David, a descendant of David. But as we start clumping these words together in verse 1 and in verse 12, it kind of narrows the field, not, I believe, away from just a general title of any descendant of David to a very particular descendant of David who was king, not just in Israel, but in Jerusalem. And David only had one son that fits that category. That would be Solomon. We're going to say more about that phrase, son of David. We've got to do something with that phrase. And then we get a little more information when it says that he was, in verse 1, the king in Israel. And then in verse 12, he even gets a little more GPS specific. It was a king over Israel. Where in Israel? Bethel? Hebron? No. Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem. That identification of Jerusalem will be important in a few moments. Now, obviously, you can tell from my tone that I'm leaning towards this is clearly Solomon that's writing this. And I do find it instructive, um, and this shows up a lot in the research material, that Jewish tradition and even early Christian tradition almost unanimously attributed this book to Solomon. As a matter of fact, Dr. Donald Glenn at Dallas, tied with Dallas Seminary, says that the, the Solomonic authorship basically went unquestioned until the Age of Enlightenment, the 17th century. And that was because of the, the introduction of, of higher criticism, criticism with the text. And he concludes, the linguistic criticism argument against Solomonic authorship is, to this day, inconclusive. It's just interesting, but it's inconclusive. So this is what we know. 
He's, the title is a preacher, someone who calls a gathering, says you need to hear what I'm going to say, so come and hear it, and then he gives it to him. He's a son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's what we know. And it was unquestioned for, for many, many generations. Not just by Jew, not just by Christians, but by Jews. That's what we know. But what are some questions that we have to wrestle with? There are questions. What are some questions? Again, go back to that phrase in verse 1, the son of David. It can refer to any subsequent generation. I, I, I agree with that. It, it, it doesn't have to be just Solomon. It can be anyone that is a descendant of David, any man in the, in the Davidic line, if you will. But we have to concur just because that's a possibility it equally can mean the direct immediate descendant, which would be Solomon. Just because it can mean something else doesn't negate the fact that it can be the simple, plain meaning of this is Solomon. We have to acknowledge both possibilities with that. Now, I do think when you say that he was not just a king in Israel, but in Jerusalem, that you are narrowing that down even more. Um, but it is interesting there's another thing that we question, and it's the fact that other, there were other rulers preceding him. You say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 16. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Now, all hits me as plural. And as, as I'm reading my Bible, it's like, well, just David was before you. Saul, when he was king, didn't rule from Jerusalem. So what's going on with the other rulers thing? And you're going to see it again. Chapter 2, verse 7. He says, I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger, listen, than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male, female uh, singers, etc., but you have, again, that concept of uh, people who preceded me. Verse 9 again. I became great and increased more uh, than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Now, granted, uh, in verse 7 and 9, he says preceded me in Jerusalem without naming that they were rulers. But let me just give those two verses over to those who say, well, there, ha there weren't plural kings before Solomon. Um, so this, cast, this has to be written much later. Uh, I, I just want to remind my thinking as I weigh that, that there's nothing, and this isn't my own conclusion, there's a lot of even recent research on this, but this could also be referring to Gentile kings. It could be referring to Jewish government leaders. It could be referring to the imperfect David. He wasn't a perfect king. Got to keep that in mind. And even earlier Canaanite settlements in Israel, and particularly ruling in Jerusalem, uh, there were other kings before David in Jerusalem. Melchizedek was. Uh, Adoni Zedek in Joshua 10.1 is another example of a Gentile king reigning in Jerusalem. So it's not an easy dismissal for us to say, well, there were other kings in Jerusalem and assume that had to be over an Israeli population. Therefore, this can't be Solomon. It has to be several generations later. Not necessarily. Another thing we have to, that some people question and we need to talk about happens in verse 12. Now, I'm using the New American Standard, which is a very literal translation. And, uh, and you read these verses. So this verse, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what was already done? Um, that's not the verse I'm looking for. But that's a good verse, and we're going to get to that. I have a misspelling in my notes, and I hate it when the, the, the word processor does that. Mm-hmm. It's the verse. Ben, which verse is it? That's, I know you've studied this already. The past tense. I was king. That's the one I just read, isn't it? Oh! Okay, so I had the right verse. Sorry. Thank you, Lori and Ben. I, the preacher, have been king. Now you say, what's wrong with that? Well, some translate uh, the Hebrew there, I was king. 
and it's it's someone uh, referring to Solomon. He's he's not king as he would he can't be king as he's writing this because it's past tense. We have to acknowledge that possibility, but at the same time, we equally have to acknowledge that. And your Nelson Study Bible even puts this in your notes if you have the Nelson Study Bible. That this word that's translated in the Nasby, I have been king, is actually preferred translation. It denotes a state of action that began in the past and continues into the present. That's, that's not difficult to wrestle with. Some of the biggest arguments that we have to acknowledge against Solomon's authorship, and this is important, you'll see why, is the Hebrew language that's used at different points. The Aramaic languages in presence of, of, of a language that appears to be 500 years after Solomon. There is some taste of that level of Hebrew and, and Aramaic that, that, that are showing up that this is too early for it to be showing up. And that's where most of the criticism comes against the Solomon authorship. They say that kind of language that we're seeing in Ecclesiastes seems um, later than the 10th century. In other words, they're wanting to put the author of Ecclesiastes about 500 years after the actual life of Solomon. But as you continue, and this is where you really get into the weeds, as you, and I'm going to mention some scholars for you to read if you really want to climb around in here, um, there's, an, there's a choir of even current scholarship that challenges those assertions more than I realized until I got into the weeds this week. Um, there's a clear familiarity in Ecclesiastes, for example, with some extra-biblical writings, the Harper Songs and the Epic of uh, Gilgamesh, which would be more closer to the time of Solomon, and uh, he would have been very well-versed in that, more so than perhaps, as one commentator says, 500 years after Solomon with backwater Jews just back from exile, they wouldn't have been necessarily familiar with those kinds of writings. So while there seems to be some later language used in Ecclesiastes, it's like, well, they weren't writing or talking like that, that is challenged. And, uh, and I'm going to give you some names to look at. It's not, a, it's not a done deal, this debate. As a matter of fact, if, what, if, if Solomon was written, or if Ecclesiastes was written 500 years later, then we would expect to see more Greek philosophy present in a late writing of Ecclesiastes, and we don't. We don't, because that Greek philosophy wouldn't have been present as explicitly back in the time of Solomon's writings. Something to consider about. Those of you who use a, um, a Christian Standard Bible, a Christian Standard Bible Study Bible, CSB Study Bible, will find some interesting discussion on that just in the introduction. But here's a big one that I, I needed an answer to. There's no mention of the covenant name of Yahweh. And, and I found that interesting. And, and I didn't have an answer for that. It's always God. God. And uh, why is that? And, and as I pressed into this a little bit, I, I loved uh, one guy who drew my attention to the fact that it wouldn't have been unlike Solomon at all to have used this book not only as a warning and a point of instruction for all generations of the Jews, but also as a track to the Gentile nations to come to the God that the Jews serve. And using perhaps Yahweh's name um, may have been helpful, it may not have been helpful, but we know that Solomon had a huge international presence and influence. All kings were coming to hear his wisdom. Remember that? Remember the Queen of Sheba as well? Remember his marriage into the Egypt royalty family? Moses had said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, I'll read it to you, and Solomon would have had this. So, so keep and do my word, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and, sure, and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord, Yahweh, our God, 
whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteousness uh, as the whole law which I am setting before you today? Could it be that with his international stretch, he was using this as a tract and, and uh, using the, the word God to bring them in? And they, it's, it's in their intersection with the Jewish people, the, the law keepers, if you will, the law stewards, that they would meet Yahweh. Could be. Could be. Okay, there's much to debate, as you can tell. I don't, I don't know Aramaic, <laughs> okay? And some of the data that I had to climb through this week has been a stretch and good. But I know this, there's a lot to debate. There's a lot to research. There's a lot to assert about these issues. But there isn't a lot to debate about what we see in this book. What we see. What do we see? Whoever wrote this book was unsurpassed in wisdom. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Almost sounds like it's too much for one man to be that wise. It's like he needs help from outside of him to be that wise to make that claim. And you would be right. Because in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, perhaps it's a coincidence, perhaps it's just the plain reading of Scripture, but it says this, God says to Solomon, when he prayed for wisdom, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. I'm just pointing it out. Not only is there unsurpassed wisdom, we see that, but there, whoever wrote this, also wrote a bunch of Proverbs. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. Then I became great and increased more and more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Look at this. My wisdom stood by me. My wisdom stood by me. He was a man of great, great wisdom. But look at this. It says in 1 Kings 4.32, he spoke three, talking of Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Coincidence, maybe, or maybe just the plain reading of Scripture. What else do we see? There's unbridled wealth. There's, there's no edge to the wealth of Solomon. Look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, just pointing it out. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I'll enjoy your, uh, so enjoy yourself. Behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He's getting ready to say, there's nothing that wasn't available to me. I enlarged my works, verse 4. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. This isn't a turtle pond. I bought male and female slaves. Verse 8, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided singers and concubines. We could go on and on. I became great and increased more than those who preceded me in Jerusalem. Is it a coincidence? Or when I go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 11 and following, I read of all this wealth that he had. He had ships which brought gold from Ophir. Um, he made of the almug tree supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house and, and instruments for singers. And, and we go on and on, and it's going to give his balance sheet in 1 Kings 10, 11 through 23, and it's staggering what he built with, what he collected, what he had access to. He had a whole fleet of ships, for example. Whoever wrote this was unsurpassed in wisdom, wrote many proverbs, he had unbridled wealth, he had an amazing building prowess, architecturally. In chapter 2, verse 4, I just read, uh, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I built gardens. He just knew how to build things in a 
according to 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 15 through 19, Solomon built, built, and built. He did the temple. He did his own house. He did a place for his wives. Um, and, and he went on. That's 1 Kings 9, 15 through 19. I'll let you write that down. And something else that's interesting, maybe a coincidence or maybe it's just the plain reading. Whoever wrote Ecclesiastes loved to study the natural world. Look at chapter 2 again. He says, I, I was into gardens and parks and ponds and trees. He says, I was just into the natural world. He would talk of it, and it had his attention. I also find it interesting that in 1 Kings 4.33, it says that Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Maybe a coincidence, but I can't deny what I see. And what I see early on here moves me in a clear direction for myself as to who the writer is of Ecclesiastes. Especially when I compare it with the other parts of God's revelation. So you can probably guess where I land on this. I am not chained to historical positions blindly. I don't want to be. But nor am I swayed by the current deconstruction and novelty of new scholarship. I, I definitely face the direction of Solomon authorship rather than away from it. Even more so after my study this week. I'm greatly helped, especially by three commentators. Uh, William Barrick, especially, this most recent of these three. He's a retired professor from the Master's Seminary. Walt Kaiser, which is a standard, um, uh, uh, simple, accessible commentary on Ecclesiastes, and even Gleason Archer in his introduction to the Old Testament. They answer the critical views that are getting fresh energy in the current day in conservative evangelicalism against Solomon's authorship. I, uh, you say, well, what do you, what do you make then about Ecclesiastes? Why would Solomon write this? And I believe that Solomon is writing this after his wild binge away from the true God, which lasted perhaps decades, where he was an idolater. And in his old age, God was merciful to him. And he is in this book reflecting on his repentance and warning others not to follow and the extremes he went. As a matter of fact, if you want to be reminded of his difficult pilgrimage, into the dark before he came out, you want, you'll find that in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8. I'm not alone in my current research on this. The winds haven't all changed against Solomon being the author of Ecclesiastes. John MacArthur holds that. Ryrie held that. Rick Holland has written a good argument on that. Archer, Barrick, Kaiser, and even the likes of Merle Unger haven't given in to that. But I want to be clear on this. I want to be clear on this. Conservatives and even speakers in this series in the next two and a half months can face other directions. Oh, even away, they might choose to take a position away from a Solom Solomon authorship, and they're not compromisers. This isn't a gospel issue. I mean, they'll be wrong if they do that. No, I'm just kidding. But understand that good conservative people disagree on this. And that's why so much is written on it. And, and, uh, and that's okay. And, and it's not to alarm us. But one thing that there's no debate on, there's no debate on who the ultimate author is. In chapter 12, verse 9, it says, um, in addition, well, excuse me, um, the verse 11, um, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. And we believe that that word shepherd is referring to God, who is behind those who write the scriptures. Well, you and I can spend all our free time, as we did tonight, fighting about who is writing, but even more important is why he is writing. And that brings us to the second hallmark of Solomon's, excuse me, Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes. 
And that's this. A de- it's a destination with keys. It provides a destination with keys. I'll never forget when I had a few family members, my wife and one of my daughters, they wanted me to start reading more fiction on vacation instead of working, uh, working and reading workbooks. And so I picked up a Grisham book, a John Grisham book, took it on vacation, and I was hooked. But boy, did I get in trouble with my wife and my daughter, Alicia, when they caught me starting a new book by reading the last chapter. It was like the ultimate crime. You can't read the end. That's awful. You're not saved, you know, and stuff like that. But sometimes it is helpful. Don't do it with a Grisham book, but with Ecclesiastes you want to do that. Go to the end of Ecclesiastes. Look at where it, the destination is going to end up. Look at this. Ecclesiastes, I think you have to start reading with chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 7. And the light is pleasant, it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be empty or, or futility. So rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. You're going to have to answer. So remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And as chapter 11 ends and takes us into chapter 12, the final destination, it sounds a lot alike. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Here's the conclusion. Here's the destination. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What do we find here at the end of Ecclesiastes? We see that here at the end, we have the theme that life is being addressed. The type of life in this book that will bring pain, or the type of life that will bring joy, But understand, as you go through this life, the decisions you make, you will answer for. There is a judgment, if you will. But some people say, well, that's the end game, is just the judgment. Then you miss it. That's why I went back to chapter 11. Because there's a reward in this life as you head towards the next, if you will. There's a reward of of enjoyment and joy in the journey. And, And that is so important. If you see that the destination at the end allows you to enjoy the journey, if you will, but make wise choices in the journey, then you're going to see this spread out all through Ecclesiastes. Let me get you, give you a couple passages, since I'm just in, introducing you to this book. You're going to see in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the same concept, enjoy the ride. You're going to see in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, And in verse 22, here's your reward in the now. You're going to see it in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. You're going to see over and over again, this is God's gift to you. As you go through this life, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the good gifts that he gives you. So let me just say that there are several keys that come if you see that. Key number one. Just remember this. In the beginning, realize there is nothing new. As you start your journey down here, if I can say it that way, realize that you think you might, you might be duped into thinking that what you're going to do has never been done before, what you're going to be has never been been before, and everything's going to be new with you. The things you're going to enjoy, the things you're going to shun, the wisdom you're going to discover... You're going to be a first, and you're going to see throughout this book that um, that's simply not true. Key number two, in the middle, we talked about it in the beginning, in the middle of your life, as you go through this life, enjoy the gifts, but don't go to extremes. Don't be overly righteous or overly wicked, you're going to read. Um, are things good to enjoy, like food and 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 friendships, and, and work. yes, but don't go to extremes. And then key number three, in the end, see the accountability that's coming. 
there is a judgment, you will give an account. So with that, this is chapter 1. Chapter 1, if these are the three keys to the book that you're going to see coming up constantly throughout the book, you're going to see here in chapter 1 that he's going to start probably with that first key. You need to realize as you get started on the journey, there's nothing new. Now look at verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which is done under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular course the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man's not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. All that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this, this is new. <laughs> Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, and it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind, was observed, uh, my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in such wisdom there is, uh, in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge only results in increasing pain. See, so what do you mean? Well, what he does here in verses 4 and 5, he uses astronomy. In verse 6, he uses the airstream of the globe. In, in verse 7, he uses the hydrologic system of water. In verses 8 through 11, he uses history. In verses 12 through 18, he uses research of wisdom. And his conclusion is there's nothing new. If you don't Embrace that at the beginning, your, your, your trajectory, your launch into this life is going to be the pursuit of nothingness, emptiness. You'll miss the mark. As a matter of fact, by the time we get done with the simple theme of chapter 1, we should have a question in our mind, the reader should, and it should be this. Well, then why do I exist? Do I exist merely for pleasure? Do I exist merely for indulgence? And that will be answered with chapter 2. And the answer, of course, is going to be no. You exist for the pursuit of wisdom. These three keys will keep you from getting intimidated by this book. All you have to ask in each chapter is which key is he showing me, or which keys is he showing me in this chapter. I think if you take these keys with you in your hand to these 12 chapters, you will learn to love this book and return to it often for profound wisdom. The third hallmark is a repetition with purpose. There's lots of repetition, but I want to give you I want to give you four to especially look out for. The first one is the word vanity. I have all the verses written out here, but I don't want to do your work for you as you're going to be reading through Ecclesiastes as in your devotions as well as as we go through these months. Watch for this word. There's a synonym with it too. Another word that's that's painting the same brushstrokes as the word futility. Keep those words together. But let me tell you what vanity means. It means emptiness. It's a void. I'd like to require, or I'd like to nickname it this. It's a satisfaction mirage. In other words, a mirage in the desert. It's like I'm thirsty. I'm dying of thirst. I see water, but it's really just a trick with my eyes, and I get there, and I'm never satisfied. When you think of vanity, think of Avoid. It, it, it's a satisfaction mirage. There's a second one. This phrase, under the sun, and a close cousin is under the heaven. You're going to see under the sun. 
over and over and over. Three lines of references here in my notes. We've read them here. What does under the sun mean? Simply this. It means the stage where our complete life unfolds, beginning to end. It's under the sun, under the heavens. That's it. Keep that meaning fresh. Number three, you're going to see this, striving after the wind. It's like chasing a gale. You see, what does that mean? Here's the best way I can summarize it. It's pursuing something to the point of exhaustion, and what you are pursuing is something that's impossible to obtain. So it's talking, and, and by the way, a close synonym with this is the concept of weariness. This, this weariness, this striving after the wind is pursuing something that you can't even, you can't even capture. And it's wearing you out, not only the output itself, but the result of after all that effort, you don't get it. Striving after the wind. And then there's a fourth one. It's the concept of no remembrance. Some, some synonyms here would be the grave. You're going to read much of the grave or Sheol. See, what does that mean? It just This is the best way I can summarize this. It, it means just remember that your obituary quickly blows away. It's written in pencil, not ink. Life details about your life will be difficult to recall after a surprisingly short time. There's no remembrance. That's going to be important. Now, a couple of honorable mentions to watch for, too. Um, I would say watch for the themes of task or work or labor, that clump of words. Watch for the concept of reward or gift, as I mentioned. And watch for the concept of wisdom and fearing God. They deserve honorable mention. These are all repeated incessantly through these chapters. Watch for them. You say, okay, I feel like my hands are full. My tool bag is loaded down for this journey. But please tell me, is this just going to be merely an academic trip through the book? Is it merely going to be complete with dry facts? Is it going to be only a data dump? Is there going to be the dingy waft of book dust every sermon? And the answer is no. Because one more hallmark of, of, of an overview of this book is this. It's going to be a series with application every week. I'll give you a couple meta applications as I look at the 12 chapters, as I see themes swirl around, and the guys as they come to cover their chapters, and they may cover the whole chapter they're assigned, they may cover one paragraph of that chapter. They may just cover one concept in that chapter. It's up to the speaker. But every message will have amazing application. Like what? Well, enjoy God's gifts in life. Enjoy. Enjoy creation. Creation's meant to be enjoyed so that the creator is glorified. Enjoy your relationships. Enjoy your, rela your responsibilities. Enjoy the skill set that you have. Enjoy the influence that you have in other people's lives. Enjoy marriage. Ben is, is assigned to a chapter that contains my favorite marriage verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You know who's doing chapter 9 now. See if it's out. I love that verse about marriage. Enjoy God's gifts. Enjoy what you know how to do that someone else may not know how to do. It's how God, you yourself are a gift to creation. Jesus, and Jesus knew carpentry. Paul knew athletics. Disciples knew family life. Solomon knew plant life. Aquila and Priscilla knew leather craftsmanship. The Proverbs 31 woman knew craftsmanship and commerce. Hezekiah knew military tactical innovations. David knew knives and swords. Remember when he said, hey, we got Goliath's sword over in the tent. What did David say? There's none like it. You know, I like that. Zenus knew legal life. Luke knew medical life. The principle here is this. General revelation, creation itself is meant to be enjoyed, studied, ruled, and stewarded. And you're going to hear that over and over. Secondly, as you study Ecclesiastes, you're going to hear Christ's echoes. Echoes of the wisdom of Jesus. You're going to learn that you need to slow down and not work so hard and 
Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You're going to hear echoes of Christ. You're going to hear uh, in Ecclesiastes that you have rewards in this life, not just after this life. And that's what Jesus told Peter in Luke 18, 29 to 30. I say to you, Peter, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. You're going to hear in Ecclesiastes that you shouldn't weary yourself beyond faith regarding your basic needs. Kind of like what Jesus will say. Look at the sparrows, look at the lilies, the Father takes care of them and you. You're going to hear in Ecclesiastes that materialism is both deadening and deadly. Kind of like what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, where there was this guy who built all these barns because he kept getting all this wealth and success. And the guy said, my life consists of what I've amassed. I just want to enjoy it. Remember that story? And he says, what you love is going to be your death. And then whose things will be your speech? Ecclesiastes is going to say, live the present for eternity, like Jesus did when he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Ecclesiastes is going to talk about an accountability and a judgment that's coming, like Jesus did over and over, for example, in Matthew 12, 36. Ecclesiastes is going to talk about what goes on in your heart will be known, like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. So here's a little surprise for you. The more you read and understand Ecclesiastes, the more it will benefit your reading of the Gospels. As you see the wisdom of God that's in Ecclesiastes come, again, from the source of Scripture, Jesus himself. And it's no, no surprise. He's the author of both. One more application. Treasure your lane. Whatever your vocation is, whatever your skill set is, Rest content in the assignment that you have at this chapter in your life as a student, as a tradesman, in education, whatever decade of life you're in, even as a senior saint. Take your assignment seriously and don't keep fantasizing about doing what someone else is doing. And then one more, just giving you a sampling of the applications you're going to see over and over. Just mark the time. Mark the time. Because life is short. He's going to say in chapter 7 these words. A good name's better than good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. And when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Every funeral you go to. Remember, yours is coming. And you get more wisdom from that than anything you and I can stream on Netflix. So, welcome to Ecclesiastes with a brief, and enough, brief enough to be frustrating introduction and overview. But these are the names you need to be praying for. And here's my prayer for our church family as we go into this. That by April... You will each own 12 sheets of worn notepaper. You will also will have prayed for 12 studied CBC men and attended 12 connected services. And that your next 12 months will be impacted for eternity. So your homework is read with these men in your devotions in the book of Ecclesiastes. Different translations, different study Bibles, dive in with us. It'll be a brisk journey, but it will yield profound wisdom. Would you stand with me as we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for the, the gift of this book as part of your canon of scripture. We want to be good stewards with it. We don't want to get hung up on what we're not supposed to get hung up on and miss the simple lessons. What we need to know at the beginning we need to know in the middle and how it ends. And I pray, Lord, that these keys will help us understand whatever chapter we're studying. May these words of repetition instruct us by reminder. And may the practical implications of this book 
become freeing for us. And suddenly we find your lordship throughout this entire book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.